famously quoted, infamously misunderstood. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And uh, this one has been translated differently. My, the, the modern translations or contemporary translations say, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. But I'm sure many of you remember when this uh, said and still does say in the King James, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers or unequally yoked with unbelievers. We'll, t we'll look a little bit at the Greek there. I'm not going to get too much into it, but I'll give you a sense of the word that's being translated when we get there. So this is an interesting passage. Be thinking about it. Um, how have you heard it used? How have you used it? Um, and what was Paul saying when he used it? It comes from a little-known book. I mean, we all know 2 Corinthians. It's a fairly long epistle of Paul. But my experience with a lot of folks, myself included, is that we kind of confuse 2 Corinthians with 1 Corinthians, and very few people really know what's in 2 Corinthians, except for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which talks about the ministry of reconciliation. That's a good holiness passage. And then 2 Corinthians 8, I think, which talks about the only passage in the New Testament to talk about financial giving. And so that one gets preached on. But apart from that, it can be sort of a, a mysterious letter. And... Um, this 2 Corinthians 6.14 is in the heart of a very important argument that Paul is making. Um, and just so that you're aware of this, uh, as we go in, you get a little bit unsettled. The passage uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 has nothing whatsoever to do with marriage, in case uh, you wondered. Now, it, does it have application to marriages? Well, it might. But we'll talk about that. But I can say with absolute certainty... Paul doesn't talk about marriage one time in the book of 2 Corinthians, so fairly certain it's not about that. So, but in 1 Corinthians, he did talk about marriage in chapter 7. But before we get to that, um, we want to remind ourselves uh, what we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired. And I don't mean... Uh, I've been interpreting these passages for us, so it's not as though we're somewhat passive and just letting them say whatever they say. But I keep bringing you back to the scripture verses that talk about the Bible's inspiration because what I want you to wrestle with is what the Bible says about itself. And I'm, I'm convinced of this, persuaded of this, that uh, churches and Christians too often wrestle with um, things other than the scriptures when they're talking about scriptural interpretation. We either deal with articles of faith or creeds or something else that's derivative. I'm not sure why we don't have this debate using the actual scripture verses that scripture uh, that that are talking about the inspiration of scripture and here are three of the primary ones there are others so this is what i want you to be wrestling with what does the bible say about its own inspiration uh, paul says in second timothy 3 that the scripture is god breathed and we talked about this the first week and i haven't made mention of this part of it again but he's he's talking about scripture which at this time is just the prophets of Israel, the first 39 books of our Bible, in the same terms that God speaks of humanity, right? In Genesis, it says that humanity, when God created us, was just dust, which he breathed the breath of life into, and that dust got up and walked around. Paul's making a similar comment about what the scripture is, what the prophets are, that they're somehow words that God breathes life into. It makes it a living thing. God can't breathe life into something and not have it live. So that's a, that's a very powerful statement on what Scripture is. It's certainly not uh, the average human being's understanding of the written word. Uh, there's no, no other culture I'm aware of that thinks of any written text in this way. But 
Paul thought this way about the prophet's teachings. And he says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And its purpose, that's what the so that means, is that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this is what the scripture says about itself. It doesn't say that its primary intention is for salvation. You notice how Paul doesn't ever say that. We say that. But the scripture is for the equipping for holy living. Second Peter says that what the prophets were doing when they were writing scripture is that they were interpreting their own history. And that means that scripture, at least the prophets, the first 39 books of our Bible, are, is primarily an interpretation. And so for Peter anyway, uh, he, he seems to be arguing that what's inspired about the scriptures is the interpretation of history that they offer. And I've been suggesting that trying to make scripture primarily a history book actually undercuts Peter's argument about what makes them authoritative. Now, that's not to say that they're not historical. That's another conversation. Of course, the prophets assumed everything they were writing about was historical. But what they're trying to provide us is an interpretation of history. And it's that interpretation that's authoritative. And you hear this in my sermons, like we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And I say, how many times have I said it? Mark wants us to see. Mark believes. Mark is arguing. Why would I bother saying that? Because I think that's what God's word is, what Mark is trying to say. I don't think God's word is whatever I can make Mark's vocabulary mean. I think God's word is what Mark is trying to say, what Paul is trying to say, what the writer of Deuteronomy is trying to say. That's the word of God. Anything else is another word that just happens to use God's vocabulary. At least that's what I've been arguing. I've got some extra ones here if anybody oh, needs uh, just three. <clears throat> so in any case, we're looking for the author's interpretation as our place in which we might find the word of God for us. At least that's my presupposition. And I'm getting that from Second Peter. I take it very, very seriously. And I have been accused by my own peers of being too literal with the scriptures. But, you know, I'm... I'm fine with reading it metaphorically if we're dealing with a metaphorical passage. But I think if you were to argue that 2 Peter is metaphorical, you're just making fun of him, I think. If I say to Jen, I love you, and she says, is that metaphorical? That's kind of a slap in the face. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to allow the text to, to speak on its own terms. When we talked about the book of Genesis, there's a great debate over what the prophets were trying to do with the first chapters of Genesis. There's a great debate over that. It's not as clear-cut as we might want to believe. Are they trying to give a mechanical explanation of the origin of life? Is it a metaphysical explanation? Is it something else? That's a debate. What are they trying to do? But when we come to a text of like 2 Peter, there's no question what Peter is trying to do. He's making an argument about false teachers, and he's telling us how we can correct false teaching and guard ourselves against it. And he's suggesting we would do it by reading the prophets, because they were Carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it, it, what's metaphorical about that? That's, my, my point is, if the, if the text we're dealing with is metaphorical, then we read it metaphorically. If it's an argument, then we read it like an argument. If it's, if it's a proposition or a list of rules or laws, then we read it that way. We let the text tell us, because what we're going for is what the prophet or the apostle is trying to say. That's, that's essentially our argument. 
John 14 sets us up for the new covenant. So those first two passages, there's no New Testament, at least no official 27 books that have been put together when those passages were written. What they're all using, the common Bible of all the early church folks, is, is what's the first 39 books of ours, what we call the Old or the First Testament. But John helps us to understand why the church later went on to give the same authority to the writings of the apostles that had been given to the prophets of Israel. And it's because of passages like this. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises his disciples that he's going to send them his Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is going to teach them new things and remind them of everything that Jesus told them. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus will breathe on the apostles long before uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church at Pentecost. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So there's a sense there in which the apostles are being authorized to speak on Jesus' behalf. And uh, I argued when we did our study on John that we have to be very careful uh, not to take those promises given to the apostles that makes them unique and claim them for ourselves as though we have the same promises. We have to be careful about that. Always recognize your context. Gospel of John is written, among other things, to defend apostolic authority. John writes his gospel at the very end of the New Testament era, around 90, in the 90s AD. All the other apostles are dead. He's the last living one. And he's confronting issues facing the church as the apostolic age comes to a conclusion. One of those issues is, who gets to say what Jesus thinks now? Now that all the apostles are gone, it's free reign, right? We can all just go and believe anything we want. And John needs to remind us that these apostles were specially set apart. I suspect that it's the Gospel of John that essentially leads to the formation of a New Testament canon. Uh, but that's debatable. That's a bit of historical reconstruction. But passages like this certainly set the stage for what the church argued about later in terms of what books should be seen as authoritative. So those are our three passages. There, there are certainly more, but those are pretty illustrative passages. Uh, in which the scriptures talk about their own inspiration. So again, as we come to 2 Corinthians, my goal is not to destroy anybody's interpretation, argue with anybody's grandmother, hurt anybody's feelings, ruin any family's sacred traditions. It's not my intention. My intention is to ask the question, what is Paul trying to argue? Because to me, that question is the same as saying, what is God's word for us? And that's why I ask it. And so however else these passages have been used that we've been studying, um, if, they, if, the, if the way we've used them fails to address the question, what is the writer trying to argue for or against, then we have failed to ask the question, what is God's word? And we've asked other questions. That's my suggestion. And you can disagree with that. That's fine. Um, but uh, you should know what I think just because you have to listen to me week to week. So, well, you don't have to, you choose to, which I am thankful for. Because <laughs> that choice, uh, you, you know, allows me to do what I feel called to do. And it's really in, in your hands whether I get to do it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, here's the passage, the full verse. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So as we have with every one of these passages, we start with just a few contextual questions. Now, we've always had every week some folks in the room who have done a little previous study or they kind of have a sense of the argument Paul's making. 
and that's great. You may not even need this study if, if you know all this. But we still ask these questions, whether we know the answers to them or not. What's the context of this admonition? When Paul says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers, what's the context? What's happening there? What's he arguing about? What has precipitated him to say that? What's he trying to warn the Corinthians against? So um, in what ways might the Corinthians have been yoking themselves with unbelievers, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians? It's another way of asking the same question. The third one, which we always ask at the beginning, it's, it can be rhetorical. You've treated it as rhetorical, I think, every week. Nobody's really been, other than me, willing to say how they've heard things read, uh, taught. But how have you heard this passage used in terms of its contemporary application? What have you heard folks say that it means for us today? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. This will be good. I'm not saying that. Now, again, when we make these arguments, sometimes the principle Paul's using um, in the specific circumstance we find in 2 Corinthians can be used in a broader circumstance. That's possible. But I want to first ask, how is Paul using it? What does he mean by it? Um, and uh, I will say this. If you really want a, a long conversation about marriage um, in these terms, you want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul addresses that issue directly. Um, but here we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So I'm going to read this, this passage. Um, 2 Corinthians is hard. It, you almost have to read the whole book, and nobody I knew would want to do that. Um, because Paul um, is writing a book to a church that he founded, but that does not think much of him. They find other people much more interesting than Paul. And we're going to see some very personal attacks Paul endured at the hands of the Corinthians in, this, uh, in one of the passages we're going to read, not this first one. Uh, and so Paul is writing a very personal letter to a church that he founded, to a church that he, that first letter in 1 Corinthians apparently was not received very well, which we hear about in 2 Corinthians. Matter of fact, so poorly received that some scholars think there might have been a letter he wrote between 1 and 2 Corinthians because the Corinthians apparently seem deeply hurt. And when we go back and read 1 Corinthians, it's hard to see how they would have been so upset by that letter. So some scholars say, man, he must have written another letter that they burned. <laughs> we don't have it. Because in 2 Corinthians, he keeps mentioning this letter that, that made them so furious at him. And um, so this is a deeply personal letter. Um, and Paul is very vulnerable in this. It's this letter where he talks about the thorn in the flesh. It's this letter where he talks about his perfection in following the law. Um, this is a, a letter in which we get more uh, background from Paul than almost any letter other than Galatians. So it's deeply personal. We get into this, sec this section of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read the whole section uh, just because you have to read it. I, you might go, I don't, what do these things have to do with one another? And that's where I want you to be because that's where I was when I started the study. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, 
through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as, un as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So you can tell how deeply personal this is to Paul. I mean, he gives a kind of a spiritual autobiography. And apparently Paul's life as a person called to do God's work has not been uh, always pleasant. It seems to have been a roller coaster ride for him, sometimes deeply, deeply painful and troubling, and other times better. And he wants them to know that. And then he wants them to know that he does love them though he accuses them of not really loving him. And then he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. So there are a couple things we need to do to address this. Oh, I, I meant to mention this. Belial is uh, either uh, uh, another name for Satan, which some people argue, which is why it's capitalized. But in the First Testament, when that word comes up, um, it usually refers, it can refer to an idol of some sort, but it usually refers to powers of chaos or destruction that war against God's orderliness, things like that. Um, and so I, I think that's probably, I don't know if Paul's using it as a kind of a short term for Satan, though that's weird because Paul usually says Satan or the devil. That's his normal thing to say. Belial, this would be the only time he ever said it. So I'm thinking he might be looking at the principle of disorderliness, chaos, lawlessness, that sort of thing. Uh, but you decide on that. But in case that threw you off, uh, you can do some study. But what we want to ask is, what is the origin of the yoke analogy? Do not be unequally yoked. Where is he getting that from? Is that just new for the New Covenant? Is that just Paul's idea? Or is this coming from something? And I think um, you know me well enough to uh, assume I wouldn't ask if it didn't come from somewhere. And it does come from the book of Deuteronomy. Matter of fact, it also may come from Leviticus, but that's less clear. So here's the passage from Deuteronomy. I'm going to read it. This is really the first discussion of the yoke and probably what Paul is referencing. And I'm going to read a lot more than just the yoke again because I want you to get a sense. There's, there's a principle at work in all of the laws in this section. My NIV says various laws in this section because they have a hard time finding the logic that unites them. See if you can find it because I do think it's there. All these laws share something in common. And that's going to help us with our conversation about what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. So see if you can see the logic amidst the randomness 
that the NIV couldn't see apparently when it just said various laws. And that's Zondervan, not the translators, right? If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. If you see your fellow Israelites ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to its owner. If they do not live near you, or if you do not know who owns it, take it home with you and keep it until they come looking for it. Then give it back. Do the same if you find their donkey or cloak or anything else they've lost. Do not ignore it. If you see your fellow Israelites donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help the owner get it to, it, get it to its feet. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go, so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. It's quite a law, huh? <laughs> when you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. The actual Hebrew there is that they will be, have to be devoted to the ban, which means they have to be given to the temple. You can't keep them if you do that. Um, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. That's where Paul got it. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Anybody? Mixed fabrics? <laughs> I think mine's a blend right now. <laughs> Make tassels on the four corners of the cloak that you... So you can see why the NIV called this various laws. <laughs> Seems quite random. Do you see any logic here? Any kind of connecting tissue? That's what I think. These are all distinguishing features of Jewish life. So the, the, the list here is really important to understand. Well, it's, it's an important list if you understand the practices of the nations of the ancient Near East. Uh, it was not uncommon for if somebody, like say a traitor to the state or somebody who was considered to be a very dangerous criminal gets caught they would often execute them and hang them high somehow and let it be displayed while the crows and everything did their work as a warning to everybody else. That's specifically what this begins with, saying you can't do that. You can't leave it overnight. I don't want the bodies displayed like that. It was a common practice in the ancient Near East. It was a common practice in Europe uh, ages back. But I want to be cautious because there are some ways in which being like the culture seem to be okay. What the law does is specifically point out areas in which they need to look different than the world in which they're going into. This is one of them. Don't hang these people high. Also, if you see an animal wandering, be concerned about it. Take care of that animal. Don't leave it to the wilds. Don't let it die. It's your responsibility until the owner finds it again. That's not a common practice in the ancient... It's not a common practice today, right? You don't see a cat wandering by and go, boy, I should take that cat in until the owner finds it. You know, we figure out it'll go home. You know what I mean? Like, like it's just, but they, God wants them to care for their neighbor's property and, and watch over it. So he says, here, take it into your house and take care of it until the owner comes. 
And that is not a typical practice that you would see in the ancient Near East. I don't think it's a typical practice in almost any culture, honestly. But here, it's here. If, if, if a donkey or an ox has fallen on the road, don't ignore it. Help the owner get it to its feet. In some ways, you might argue that the parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' kind of extension of this to beyond animals to humans. Um, so there it is again. This woman not wearing men's clothing, men not wearing women's clothing, common practices in the ancient religions of the ancient world. Right up into Jesus' day in Rome, they did the same thing. It's usually part of some sort of a pagan ritual, uh, religious ritual, where the cross-dressing and changing of genders, and that certainly happened with Baal and Ashtoreth uh, in Canaan. So he's saying, don't do that. Make a distinction. He's not telling them what they have to wear. Just make sure that there's a distinction, right, and that you don't try to blur the lines. Uh, if you come across a bird's nest, here again, um, you know, don't kill the mother, just the eggs. There's a principle there, but it's also a very strange requirement. Uh, this is not a sensibility that most people would have. I mean, if you can catch the mother, you catch her. You, she's good eating too, you know. Um, this idea that building a house, you have to build a parapet on the roof. There's kind of the sense in Israel that if you don't take proper precautions and somebody gets hurt, you're responsible for their injury. So if that's a unique feature of, of Jewish, well, Israelite law. And it's in our law today. Um, you can, for negligence and things like that, you can be held accountable. But that's a hangover from Israelite law. That's not found in very many other places. But here it certainly distinguished them from the other nations of Canaan. So here you'll find other passages where if you dig a hole and you don't put a, some kind of a barricade around it, you're responsible if somebody falls in. This is roofs were flat. People often slept on them at night. It's very hot and no air conditioning and all that. And uh, you had to put a parapet, some sort of a restraint, so somebody wouldn't easily fall off, especially at night, because remember, they're often sleeping up there. If you don't do that, you're responsible, and the person has a right to take vengeance. That's what the guilt of bloodshed means. So, so that's, uh, that's tough. Don't plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. Uh, you know, this, this is a strange requirement. I mean, uh, planting only one kind of seed actually makes crops quite susceptible to pests and things like that. So some people will uh, mix, but don't do it. Um, if you do that, whatever you get, whatever yield you get from the land, you have to give it to the temple. That's You can't keep it. Uh, so it was a good impetus not to do it. I'm sure that there, once this was true, I'm sure there were Levites roaming the countryside looking for mixed crops that they could take back. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, but this is this makes them look different. It was going to make their agricultural landscape look different than the other nations. That's interesting. Um, and don't, I, I don't, would anybody plow with an oxen and a donkey yoked together? I don't know. Maybe people do this. But, but again, the distinction is, not to marry together, not to bring together two different animals for one task. That's a very interesting requirement. But again, it made them look different, perhaps. And not wearing clothing of mixed, again, reminds them to stay separate. Remember, this is all holiness stuff. And these tassels they were to make on their garments, you find the requirements other places, but they look like long kind of braids. Um, and the number of knots on the tassel uh, varies, but everybody has a reason. Sometimes for the number of books of uh, Moses, you'll have five knots for the five books of the law, things like that. But the tassels were a something you would wear that would make you look different than everybody else. So somebody could know you're an Israelite just by looking at your clothes. 
And that's what God wanted. He wanted to make sure that you could be known. Because the other really defining sign of being an Israelite was circumcision. That's not so readily available to see. So the tassels are the readily available part to see. So this is about holiness, separation, being different, looking different, behaving differently, living with a different set of sensibilities than the surrounding nations. So Paul takes that principle, which the yoking idea comes out of. He, he could have said, don't wear garments of mixed material, but that probably wouldn't have made any sense to his audience because I'm sure they, they mix the materials and, and all that. He could have said, make tassels, but I doubt that they would, that would have made much sense to them. But the yoking of animals, they would have understood. And so here he uses it. So how is he using that principle of separation, of difference, to guide the How is that principle of being separate being used here in Corinth? We're not quite ready to answer it for certain, but we have a line of sight. But you have to remember the context. Paul started that conversation by talking about how he suffered. Why? What does that have to do with being yoked with unbelievers? What, what is the picture he's drawing? You yoke, you don't, you, oxen don't live yoked together, right? Anybody raise that? You don't keep them yoked all the time, do you? When they're yoked, it's for what? Work. Yeah, they're going to plow field or they're going to do some work. So they only get yoked for work. So what is the field? What's the work Paul is doing? Yeah, and he, he listed out what it looks like. Like if you were describing what it looks like to plow a field, you could come, come through a list of things that it looks like to plow a field. Paul is saying that as Christians, we're laboring together. And here's what it looks like. Um, uh, we have to be able to endure in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, uh, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness, in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, people saying bad things about me on Facebook and nice things about me on Facebook, right? Yet regarded as imposters. I mean, genuine, yet regarded as imposters. We use the word poser today, right? Comes from that word. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Who are you going to get yoked with here? It's going to have to be quite a, quite a work a worker, look at this field. This is the worst field imaginable. You want to make sure that the yoking that brings people together for the work in this field is going to be adequate. So don't be yoked with an unbeliever. What's going to happen to an unbeliever when you face trouble or hardship or distress, when you have to be beaten or imprisoned or in a riot? What's going to happen? Well, they're going to cut and run, right? So how could you work with them? They're going to be sawing at the yoke. They're not going to be pulling with you, right? What's going to happen in those sleepless nights, in the time where you have no food, right? So Paul is using the yoking analogy to help us to understand that if we're working in this field, we're going to have to be, we can't be yoked with an unbeliever. Apistas is, is the word, the unfaithful, whatever that means. But let's look at this passage on how this comes home. 
for Paul. And you have to go on in First Corinthians, on Second Corinthians a little bit before you get to the heart of Paul's argument and what he's struggling with. It's a long passage, uh, but I think we have to read it together. So here we go. This is probably the most personal of the entire personal section of the entire letter in my reading. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Paul's finally getting to what he believes to be the heart of the issue. And it's taken him a while. He's dealt with a lot of peripheral things, a lot of issues that are important. He's talked about the gospel and how hard the field is. He told them not to be unequally yoked. But we haven't yet found out who they're yoking themselves with. Who are the unbelievers that Paul is talking about? Is it just any random unbeliever? Is this just saying anybody who doesn't fully agree with everything you say? Is this saying that Nazarenes can't be yoked with Baptists or with Catholics or whatever else? I mean, what, what is this talking about? Paul's going to tell us, and, and he's going to finally get to it. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. This is, remember I told you Paul's the most passive-aggressive of, this is an accusation made against him. So he's passive-aggressively saying it. I, Paul, who am timid when face-to-face, but bold toward you went away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, probably us apostles, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Hence his passive-aggressive statement at the beginning. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. That sounds like a threat. Does it to you? We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did not get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. You get in the sense that Paul is addressing criticisms of him made by another group of folks who apparently are quite persuasive and have taken the Corinthians in? These are other preachers, it sounds like. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. 
But let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it's not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus, other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of you to you, the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. This is part of the problem. These other people were accepting money, and Paul refused the Corinthian money. That bothered them. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us, apostles, in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. We're finally getting to it. I know some of that's confusing because Paul is a confusing writer. And we don't have the other half of this conversation. But the Corinthians apparently did. They knew what he was addressing in all these particulars. What we need to glean from all this is that Paul apparently is concerned that the Corinthians have been taken in by teachers who are claiming some things we can sort of deduce from his responses. First, they're very good speakers. Very charismatic, very persuasive. As a matter of fact, it seems that compared to Paul, Paul is bland in regard to these charismatic speakers. And they're using their charisma to put themselves forward as either equal to or superior to the apostles of Jesus. And Paul is insisting that there are no apostles of Jesus other than the apostles of Jesus. So that's another problem. And they seem to be mixing worldly belief systems with the gospel that the apostles had been teaching. And the Corinthians were fine with it. Apparently, they were really fine with it. And apparently, these super apostles were also taking a, a bit of money from them. They were supporting them. And Paul is reminding them that he never asked for any money from them. He took money from other churches so that he could do the mission in Corinth, rather than asking the Corinthians to pay for his ministry there. That's important for Paul, probably because it's not what the other apostles were doing. So when Paul says, do not be unequally yoked, what is his specific line of sight? Do not yoke yourself with a leader who does not pull towards Jesus. Now that principle may have much broader I mean, I'm sure it's something we might think about when we're thinking about going into business with someone who's not a believer. 
I certainly think Paul implies a similar principle when it comes to marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, where he reminds the Corinthians that if somebody is to get married, that they should make sure that the person belongs to the Lord. You see that in 1 Corinthians 7. So that might be this principle being fleshed out in other contexts. It very well may be. But what we want to recognize here is that Paul is insisting that by tethering yourself to someone who preaches a gospel other than the gospel taught by the apostles, you have yoked yourself together with a faithless person. And they will pull you, you will not pull them. That is a challenging thing. And what I want to pull out of this is some of the ways that we're taken in. Because the Corinthians were taken in by these super apostles in a few ways. First of all, they were great speakers. Nothing leads to deception more than great presentations. If we love the presentation, we'll forgive a lot of sins. You might even say in modern uh, contemporary preaching, funny jokes covers over a multitude of sins. Great stage presence covers over a multitude of sins. So they are deeply drawn in by great speaking, deeply drawn in by it. They apparently are drawn in by this way of taking cultural values and mixing them up and making the gospel uh, somehow work with them very comfortably. That's a problem. Remember, you weren't supposed to wear fabrics of you know, clothes of mixed fabrics. You weren't supposed to have two kinds of seed in your field, all that sort of thing. What else do you see? Those are the ones I want to make sure we don't miss. What else do you see? What else took them in and basically caused them to move away from Paul and the other apostles? They preferred these. How, how is Paul trying to help the Corinthians understand the actual criteria by which one is to decide if a person is faithless or not in terms of a leader? What's the actual criteria? What is it? Not just the word generally, right? But Paul says they cannot say something I, other than what I told you. That's an arrogant claim. I mean, and no wonder he has to say, I'm not boasting. You know, I know it sounds like I'm boasting. I keep talking about the authority I've been given. And that sounds like I'm full of myself. But believe me, I'm only saying it, right? Do you see him say this? I'm saying it because that's what God told me to do. And so it's not me, it's God. And how many people tell us that? I mean, you know, you can see them going, yeah, sure, it's God, Paul. You know, you're so boring, though. You're just so boring. And your letters are so attacking. Like, we just like these other guys better. They're nicer. They're better at dinner parties. You yelled at Peter for not eating right. These people, they, people like them. You're just unlikable. You know, that you can see all this coming out. And, and Paul is saying, believe me, I'm not boasting. I'm not full of myself. This is what God called me to do. And I think for Paul, the claims he's making are claims only he and the other apostles can make. He doesn't seem to expect that others will arise who can make similar claims. He seems to deny that here. And so the criteria he gives them is to look deeply at the apostolic teachings and to ask if what's being taught is consistent with what the apostles have told them. Is it consistent with the gospel they received? Now, it's interesting for us in this vantage point to have that conversation because the books we now call the gospels weren't written when Paul wrote these words. 
So what is he talking about? But we trust, and this is trust, we trust that Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, that they accurately and faithfully recorded the apostolic interpretations of Jesus. That would have come with Paul. That would have come with Peter. We have to trust that. Because by the time at least Matthew and Luke are written, certainly John, Paul is dead. But we believe that the early church faithfully recorded those things. So we trust, but they don't have it in writing now. And that's the big problem. That's why I'm going here. They only have what they heard Paul say. And they're getting confused because other people come saying other really good things. Have you ever been in the experience in which the, whoever you listen to last is the most persuasive thing you've ever heard? You know, the most recent, oh, I like that. That's great. This is, this is why the Bible got written. That's what I want to say. These kinds of situations, the apostles finally decide they have to commit it to writing because all of these claims that others are making, Already, when the apostles were still alive, people were rising up claiming they had the authority to speak on God's behalf equal to the apostles of Jesus. They were already claiming it. And Paul has to run around the world trying to say, no, 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 we're the apostles. They're not the apostles. We're the apostles. They're not the apostles. We're the apostles. How do we know you're the apostles? Because Jesus called us. We didn't see him call you. You're boring. They're fun. They're certainly the apostles. Why would God call you, Paul? Why would he call you? And this is, this is this debate. And so the church begins writing down its teachings, the apostles' teachings, as a way of making sure that these other super kinds of apostles don't rise. Uh, earlier in Corinthians, uh, I think it is in 1 Corinthians, Paul will even say, I didn't try to persuade you with finely crafted words. Instead, I did miracles. So you could see it was God. And uh, that becomes kind of the apostolic proof that they could do these works of power, uh, which is interesting, right? But they do that as a way to validate their teaching. But it's interesting that when a guy is doing those kind of works of power and he's not one of the apostles, Jesus says, don't stop him. right? Don't stop him. But what we get through Acts, you remember this? When, when the people, the 3,000 are converted, and they all come and they come to the apostles' feet. The apostles' primary task was to teach. And when people wanted them to do other things, they said, could you please distribute some food? Because remember, there are two categories of uh, Jewish people. There are Jewish Jewish people, and then there are Hellenistic Jewish people, Greek-speaking Jewish people, you know, not real Jews, like kind of pseudo-Jews is the way that the... the and so uh, apparently the real Jewish people, the Palestinian Jewish people, were getting all the food. And nobody was giving the Hellenistic Jews anything. So they come and make a complaint to the apostles and say, could you please distribute the food because it's not being done fairly? That seems like a legitimate request. The apostles say, no, we, we can't. We're, we, no, we're supposed to teach. We're going to waste our time dis distributing food? We're supposed to teach. And so they hire, more or less, some folks to do the distribution. And if you watch the book of Acts, they're all Hellenistic Jews. Now the Hellenistic Jews become responsible for distributing all the food. That's the apostles' wisdom. But the apostles refuse to do it because they're supposed to teach. As the scriptures move on, everything is based on the apostles' teaching about Jesus.
And when Paul started to leave pastors, what we call pastors, he called them presbyteros, presbyters, mm -hmm. elders. When he started to leave them, Timothy, Titus, what he wanted them to do primarily is guard the doctrine. Make sure we stay with the gospel. That's what he wanted Timothy, read the book. But again, we like our pastors to do everything but that, right? We don't want theologians. We want our best friend. We want people who can sit with us when we're sick. We want people who can do all kinds of ministry and make sure food is distributed appropriately and all that kind of stuff. But Paul and the apostles were most concerned with heresy. And there was a whole class of people, the apostles, who were dying when 2 Timothy and Titus are written. And Paul is in prison probably for the last time, ready to die himself. And he realizes, these super apostles were around when I was still there. I had to, they followed after me and they ruined everything. And I had to go back and talk, what's going to happen when we're all gone? And so he starts putting people he trusts, Timothy, Titus, into place to guard the doctrines. But the church has never been very interested in that, despite the apostles. But, but this is what I want you to understand. To be yoked together with an unbeliever in the context of 2 Corinthians is to tether ourselves and to plow God's vineyard with one who has changed the gospel. I think by making this about marriage, not that it has no play in marriage, probably does, though I don't think of my marriage as, as a yoking of sorts. Of course, the scriptures never use yoke in terms of marriage. But... but even if it has played there, I think by focusing on that, we have deafened ourselves to the actual word of God by paying attention to another word. Because it is true that it's very difficult for people of different faiths to be married. How do you raise the kids? What happens when you go through difficult times? It is. It's very hard. We all have experience with that. We have family members who have experience with that. There are stories we could tell. So why not talk about that? Because it's not what this is about. That's why not talk about that. You're wasting your time. The word of God is what Paul is saying to you. Not whatever you want to say. Yeah, there are great, wise things we could say about anything. But when we come to the word of God, we're interested in what Paul was saying, not what we can make him say. We might say, put Paul, just like they did. You're boring. That's not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is my fiance. Could you say something about that? Well, I can't find anything about that, but I could make this be about that, so let's do that. Again, the super apostles tell us what we want to hear. And they're happy to change the gospel so that you like what they say. Happy for that. But Paul is trying to tell us something that we have forgotten. And I tell you, I mean, I need to kind of end with this, but I mean, I'm putting my own job at risk, which is where it should always be. Should always be at risk. I was on. I was just in a group. Um, it's a private group for pastors, and one of them had been asked to leave his his congregation um, after only ten months there. Big shock. Had no idea it was coming. They have thirty days to get out. They have nowhere to go, and they had a parsonage there, so they have no home. So now they're homeless. And of course, he didn't want to give us any details. He just put it up there and said, "Pray for me." And of course, you, you have tons of sympathy for that happening because. When that happens to a pastor, other pastors think it's always the congregation's problem. You know, it's never the pastor. But, but there is a sense in which when I read that, I pray for him and I'm worried about it. But what if it was legitimate? What if they were refusing to yoke themselves with an unbeliever? What if he really was? 
pushing a contrary gospel as far as their elders knew. Did they do wrong by dividing the church? I think they do exactly what Paul told them to do. Exactly what he told them to do. Don't yoke yourself with an unbeliever. Don't yoke yourself with someone who wants to change the gospel. No matter how fun it might be. Don't let them do it. I think that Paul is putting all of us who would live after the apostles and claim to speak in their name at risk. I think Paul loads up a gun and hands it to the congregation of the saints and says, point this at your leaders. I think this is Paul's attempt to guard the church because there's nothing more dangerous to the church than a leader who presumes to change the gospel and lead people into apostasy. Matter of fact, once you have eyes to see this, it's all through the scriptures. And in 2 Peter, that's all it's about. 1 Peter mostly can't get off that subject. 2 Timothy, Titus, all about that. Galatians, all about that. Colossians, all about that. 2 Corinthians, all about that. You might argue that the apostles are worried about almost nothing else than that the gospel be changed and people be led to a false gospel. Like They're desperately afraid of it. But that's not oftentimes our primary criteria because we have led ourselves to believe, allowed ourselves to believe, that the Bible is so confusing that nobody knows what it means. So we'll just follow the one who sounds the best. But this is my litmus test. If I, I'll say this to a pastor that I'm working with, and I'll say, if you are convinced that Paul is arguing for this or that, you have to submit to him. If the answer is no, I think false apostle, false teacher, almost every time. Now, if we're arguing about what Paul says, and we're just not sure what he's trying to say, which happens a lot. I mean, you've read it. Paul, Paul's tough. If, if, if we're just debating and we're not sure, does Paul want us to baptize our infants or not? Have you read Colossians 2? It's very confusing. Should the infants be baptized or should we wait till they're old enough to decide? If you're arguing based on what Colossians says and you don't know what it means, that's legitimate. But if the response you get is, well, Paul thought that, but Paul was wrong. I think, I think essentially the primary criteria that we see in 2 Corinthians for knowing who these false apostles are is that they disagree with Paul. I mean, that's essentially it. I know it sounds arrogant. Paul says it too. I'm not boasting. But he is boasting. But he's not boasting. But yes, if they disagree with me, they're false apostles. That's a huge statement. No wonder everybody thought he was arrogant, full of himself. I think, it, I think in the end it is probably why John, after all those years, with three Gospels already in circulation, decided another one was necessary. Because here we have to show how Jesus set apart these 12 for unique and special purposes. I think that's the primary impetus of the Gospel of John. Yeah. Well, we'll end on that. Thank you for enduring this series with me.